Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 66, Zen Mountain Monastery, Zen and the Arts. How does one make love with light? And how are contemplative and artistic practices related? John Daidalori Roshi, abbot of the Zen Monastery in New York, joins us to discuss the history and development of his teachings, especially with regards to the key role that art plays in Zen practice. This is part one of a two-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To learn more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive your free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit donoharm.us. Roshi, I'm interested to know uh, if you could tell for our listeners' benefit something about the history of Zen Mountain Monastery. How did it come about, and especially the joining of Zazen with contemporary art practices? Mm -hmm. It started um, while I was still training with Mazumi Roshi in L.A. I uh, would periodically give workshops in photography or art, and um, so he knew that I had a real interest in uh, the relationship of art to Zen practice. And the reason for that interest was my photography teacher, Mina White, used uh, meditation as an entrance into photographing. So in all the workshops I did with him. At MIT. At, at MIT mm-hmm. and also workshops outside of MIT. Mm-hmm. They were all built around a meditative thing. Then uh, it was through that meditation that I began to get interested in Zen. And I started studying with Soa Nakagawa Roshi. And Soa Nakagawa Roshi is uh, not only a Zen master, but also a quite excellent calligrapher, poet, uh, no drama. So he was an artist. In fact, he preferred to hang out with artists rather than Zen masters. And uh, I got an opportunity to work closely with him, to watch him. So in Roshi, if you asked him a question of the Dharma, would just as likely hand you a piece of calligraphy or a poem as give you an answer, mm. any kind of a practical answer. So my entrance into the Dharma was via the arts. Mm. And I probably never would have walked in the front door of any monastery. I mean, I was too anti-religious to do that, you know. So it became obvious as I trained with my teacher that my inclination was toward the arts. Mm. And he told me that if I would come east as the head monk for my Dharma brother who was starting a center in New York, that once I helped him get started, that I could go off on my own and do that art thing you want to do. So we started out as the Zen Art Center. Was this in, in Tremper, New York? In Mount Tremper, mm-hmm. yeah. When, when I purchased that piece of property, the sign that went out front was Zen Art Center. And uh, lots of artists began to come. This was around 1980? 1980, mm-hmm. yeah. So artists started coming to it, but... What they, uh, and we were doing workshops in the arts, and they started saying to me, look, we didn't, we're already artists. We didn't come here to study art. We came here to study Buddhism. And so within a year, the sign changed and it became Zen Mountain Monastery. And the emphasis 
became a meditative, traditional Zen training, but with art as one of the components of that traditional training, because there's a long history of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Zen, Zen in the arts uh, it goes all the way back to uh, the Song Dynasty and before. You know. mm-hmm. When you were studying with Minor White, at MIT, that was at MIT in Cambridge? I did some courses there. I wasn't going to MIT. Uh, what what was the time frame of that? That was uh, probably 1972. Mm. I was already meditating before that, but it was kind of a, I was doing what everybody else did, you know, going to ashrams and checking this out and that out. And it was around that time I actually met Trungpa Rinpoche for the first time. Yeah, interestingly, I was living in Boston at the same time, oh. during the same time, and I remember that ferment of Scientology and the, there was a very strange group called the Process, the Process that was around, and and they, well, I won't go into their philosophy, uh, but uh, there were a lot of things going on in Boston and Cambridge at the time, as you know. Mm. And uh, well, uh, you know, I guess it was seventy uh, four when Trimka Rinpoche uh, had that thing at the Harvard Divinity School called Dharma, the Visual Dharma. Yes, yes, yeah, I went to that too. Actually, I, I missed that. I, I hadn't quite met him yet. I, it was not till 76 that I met him. Mm-hmm. I was still participating in the ferment. <laughs> but I was interested when he uh, to read his book, Meditation in Action. He begins the mm-hmm. book by telling the story of the Buddha and how uh, in the Buddha's time it was very much like that. There were many, many uh, spiritual traditions, tra- traditions and, uh, uh, and opportunists mm, right. all around. Well, it's the same today. Yeah, it seems so. When you uh, started, uh, it sounds like at Tremper Mountain that the initial thing was uh, an art center, and then, as you said, the students became interested in the meditation part. I'm curious to know how uh, how did you evolve the the daily schedule there? I was reading on your website about uh, that. It sounds very formal that the uh, the day begins uh, with zazen, and that mm-hmm. it's, it's very structured and formal. Very. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it follows a traditional monastic schedule. And we allow for what we call art practice. The basis of our structure there is what uh, I call the eight gates of Zen. And that is Zazen, the teacher-student relationship, liturgy, the precepts, work practice, art practice, body practice, and academic study. Those are the eight gates. Mm-hmm. Is, are, is that a traditional list? Uh, no. Oh. No, I, I developed that. It's based on, though, the Eightfold Path. Mm-hmm. You can find parallels with the Eightfold Path. I have a practical question about how you work with students, um, because this comes up a lot of times in the art classes at Naropa, uh, in artistic training, especially in a context, um, I think it actually in any context, but because we're talking about the context of uh, Zazen and artistic practice, how do you relate with the verbal and discursive content of artistic activity, the conceptualized directing, say, of a painting, you know, that as you're working on something, that there is a a mental component that's going on that may... I try to destroy it. In your own mind as you're working on it? Yeah, and I try to help a student get away from that and let uh, the mind stop moving. And let the brush paint by itself. Mm. You know, let the mm-hmm. camera photograph by itself. 
not to approach a subject with some preconceived idea because what you're going to end up with is a visual representation of some intellectualization. Mm-hmm. If there's no intellectualization, then the subject kind of creates the... Uh, you have no pre- preconceived idea. Mm-hmm. So the subject kind of creates the, the art, manifests mm-hmm. the art. Mm-hmm. Our approach... It may be a misnomer to even call it art that we do. It's Zen art, and it's based on the traditional Zen arts and the way they're taught, and it's based on the aesthetic that Hishimatsu speaks of, the Zen aesthetic, where no mind is one of the important aspects of that. No clinging, no attachment, spontaneity, those qualities are part of what I try to encourage people to do. And it's pretty hard when you make the leap from Sumier brushwork to video production or photography. And so these koans that I use are designed to help people find their way and to use their creative expression as a sense of discovery. So a typical koan might be, Make love with light. Photograph a feeling of love that you have for some person, place, or thing other than the subject. And to use light in such a way that the light reveals the loveliness of your subject. So it means that they can't photograph the thing they love. They have to find a visual metaphor for that. They have to find some other image that evokes the same feeling of love. And I ask them to go out with no preconceived notion of what they're going to photograph, to let it be a process of discovery, to go out with an attitude that's open and receptive, and that when they feel the presence of their subject, they'll be drawn to it. There's a kind of a resonance that happens between the photographer and the subject. And then when you find that, to sit in the presence of the subject and wait to be acknowledged. And only then do you start the process of photographing. Mm. So it's, um, it's very contemplative. Mm-hmm. So how do you destroy the conceptualization? Zazen. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up and sit. <laughs> Are you familiar with the uh, tracking teacher, Tom Brown? Oh, yeah. Um, he gives a wonderful instruction about going to a spot. It sounds very similar to what you're describing. You go to a place and you look for a spot that feels that you feel a resonance with and you sit down there mm-hmm. and you sit very still and you try to open all of your sense perceptions yeah. and keep your mind very still. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, he's talking about this in the context of tracking. Mm-hmm. And what he says, and you've probably done this yourself, but what he says, and I've experienced it myself, that you can go into the woods and do this. And what happens is the animals start coming closer and closer oh, to yeah. you. They'll come, a bird will come and, and pluck around in, in just inches from you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, really, that's, that's so. And, you know, you can trace this back, this approach to photography or what Tom Brown's talking about, back to... 1901, Evelyn Underhill's book uh, called Mysticism. And in it, she talks about the mystic's experience 
of things. And she talks about how to sit in the presence of something and open up to it. And the longer you sit with it, the more it reveals itself. And layer upon layer, deeper layers begin. So in the West, our tendency is to express the form, the outward appearance of things. Uh, the Zen arts are more concerned with the spirit or the underlying aspects of things. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that we try to cultivate, help people cultivate. Mm-hmm. It, it, it in no way says that the other ways of doing art are wrong. It's just another way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually very interested as, an, as a Westerner and an artist, you know, what is, uh, how do you uh, also have the form be that way? Do you know what I mean? That it's not, it's not just discursive conceptual mind, but it, it's somehow joining uh, awakened mind with, with conceptuality, if such a thing could be said. Well, I mean, uh, yes, sooner or later you have to come down off the mountain back into the world. <laughs> so I guess that's the manifestation of the absolute in everyday activity. And that's the joining that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I like that instruction. It comes across in your book, the instruction that for you it sounded like uh, was uh, very strongly encouraged by Minor White's in, uh, teaching and also what we were just talking about with Tom Brown and your koan instructions to the students um, is that the uh, sometimes find it useful to use, the say, the Tom Brown exercise as a metaphor for how the mind, if you're thinking of the animals, uh, you can think about those metaphorically as being a sort of a- awakened creativity or something that the you know the bird those if there was a birds they they will come if the mind is settled yeah i mean that they pick up on and i think any good hunter knows that they Mm -hmm. pick up on the energy of the uh person Mm -hmm. i mean uh i think people do it too only it's so subconscious in people because people are constantly talking to themselves so they can't hear the subtleties, mm-hmm. you know. But communication is happening. Babies pick up on it. Uh, dogs and cats pick up on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you get somebody that hates dogs pretending they like dogs, mm-hmm. nice dog, you know. <laughs> the dog knows, you mm-hmm. know, what's going on underneath. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine in the wild how much more sensitive they are. Mm-hmm. I once heard you say in a talk, um, you were talking about the land at at Tremper Mountain and that uh, you were deliberately keeping most of the land wild. And you went on to give, and this is what I recall, I might not have heard it exactly right, but you you went on to say that the wildness of the land was a metaphor for Buddha nature or that it was the same as Buddha nature. Yeah, that uh, wildness is Buddha nature. It's not, wildness means cultivated. Gary Snyder talks about this Mm -hmm. in one of his books, that wildness basically means uncultivated, unmanaged, uncontrolled. And that's what Buddha nature is. I mean, it's a fundamental nature. So uh, what happens to the Buddha nature? Well, it gets buried under conditioning, conditioning by our parents, by our teacher, by our culture, by our religion, by our nation. So by the time someone reaches 30 years of age, they don't know who they are, what their life's about. Uh, And what is Zazen about other than peeling back those layers of conditioning 
and getting to the ground of being that underlies it all. The ground of being is Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. And learning to live one's life out of that, not what you've been told or what you should do or shouldn't do, but what you know from your own direct experience is who you are. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, I think that's the wildness. Yeah, that has always stuck with me because I, I think I have always resisted the idea of trying to uh, domesticate anything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to overly domesticate. and. Sure. I, and I noticed in teaching at Naropa, a lot of the students are very sort of weary, wary, not weary, but wary. They're, they're suspicious of anything that's going to, some, some of them say, take, take away their edge. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree with them 100%. And I think we do that with kids. Our educational system does that. We, we create automatons, uh, uh, you know. Uh, one of the ways that we teach and that I'll be teaching here at Naropa this weekend, is I really don't teach them anything. Um, you know, I give them these koans, the visual koans, or they're not visual koans only because some people will be writing and doing poetry. When they come back with their work, they get feedback from a creative audience, not from me. And... Uh, and a creative audience basically shares their experience, not what they think, not what they like or don't like, but what their experience of that piece of art was with the artist. Mm. And you get that kind of creative audience from two or three people, you get a sense of what it is that you're feeding to your audience. I mean, most artists go through life creating art, and they know if people like it, or don't like it. They, they like it if they publish it or they display it or exhibit it or, or the critics tell you. But nobody knows what the experience of the audience is. And this creative audience does that. And it's in the process of the creative audience that you begin to learn to get what you want out of the art, which is not necessarily what I think it should be or that I think it's good or not good, or so on. So, of course, I'm not teaching them technique. I'm teaching them about seeing, hearing, and experiencing. It's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have to teach somebody. When I was teaching photography, I was very discursive. I mean, they have to learn the techniques of it, you know. But what I'm doing in these workshops is not that. Mm-hmm. It's about creative expression. Mm-hmm. That um, gets at a, something that I did want to ask you about, and it was the uh, for a person, say, someone who's practicing zazen on a regular basis and practicing art, there seems to be a, uh, a fairly obvious connection between taking responsibility for one's own state of mind and in relation to either zazen or the painting or whatever they're working on. Mm-hmm. But I was curious to know how you work with students on the sort of the other side of that. And it sounds like you're doing that with this uh, creative audience that what happens to the work as it goes out into the world. Now, this is a topic in classes at Naropa. A lot of times with the art classes is what, you know, what is the responsibility for what the thing looks like or mm-hmm. what kind of an effect it has mm-hmm. on the world? I, I, I'm so happy to, to hear this. I'm so happy to hear that, that, that it's, it's happening here. I guess I taught my first class here at Naropa the first year that it started, uh, first summer. And I had a class of about 40 
people who were photographers. And these were, re- I mean, it was the most powerful group of students I ever taught. These people were published and, and exhibited, and they knew their stuff. While we're in the class, I made the statement, and I got the statement from Minor White, and I just kind of regurgitated it, that people need to take responsibility for their work. Uh, I mean, it ties into my previous life as a scientist, you know, the same thing. You have to take responsibility for your research and what people do with that Mm -hmm. research. So I said that, you know, some images are poisonous and some images are nourishing and that you know a poisonous image when you walk away from it and you feel that you've been depleted Mm -hmm. something's been taken away and a nourishing image leaves you fulfilled you walk away with a feeling of fulfillment well next thing i know this discussion opens up where i had people justifying snuff movies Mm mm-hmm you know, where they kill the actresses, realism, Mm -hmm. you know, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, here I am at this supposedly Buddhist institution and people are talking, justifying snuff movies. I locked the doors. The class was over. I locked the doors. Nobody's leaving until we settle this. And we (laughs) stayed for two hours and debated this, Mm -hmm. you know. I don't know how it finally, I don't even remember how it finally turned out. I mean, we were just exhausted, all of us. But the very fact that that question is still alive and people are still reflecting on it here at Naropa, I, 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 that's a blessing. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. I don't think anybody at Naropa these days would be arguing in favor of snuff movies, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.